0: Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice.
1: Yes, you can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, she has over 3 million followers on social media, three fitness apps, a best selling book, and today, Chrissy Chella joins me to discuss her latest title, Happy, Healthy, Strong. Dr. Mary Murray, clinical psychologist, family psychotherapist and editor of a new book, Living with Motor Neuron Disease, on why this will be an invaluable resource to inform, educate and prepare those living with MND and their loved ones. And why we love the new science behind our closest relationships, a new book and its author, Anna Machin, on why we put too much emphasis on romantic love and should reconsider the amount we have in our lives. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm quite into my 2022 energy so far, I'd have to say. It's not always like this. So sing when you're winning. Um, I was raring to go with new projects and bring a new focus to my regular ones. And so far, so good. I feel very grateful for my lot. My main focus this year was to be more organised with my time as every week for me, is different. Often they can run away with me and it can feel like I have no time when I know that that isn't the reality. So I'm trying to sit down on a Sunday evening or a Monday morning and plan out my week, see what's ahead, schedule in exercise time, self-care time, extracurricular stuff, like an online course that is just taunting me with its incomplete status, family time, all of it. The beauty of writing things down, even with lists, is that you get the joy of ticking them off, of feeling you've accomplished something. Without the planning, you're still getting lots done, but without that pat on the back. And there's been times I probably could have managed things better and gotten more done. So I just had a sense I wanted to level up is what I call it a little this year, rather than mosey on with much of the same. I follow Siobhan O'Hagan. She has been a guest on the show a couple of times. She is a bit of a queen for the self-development books. She's read and implemented so many and she shares lots on her page. She never seems regimented necessarily. She has plenty of space for joy and relaxation in her life. But she does seem to plan a morning routine and plan out her work time. She works for herself with online fitness plans and... She works out blocks of 25 minutes as this is when she says your concentration begins to wane. So I don't know what she does after that. Maybe she walks around, gets a snack and then comes back to it. Now, I'm not quite there yet, but what I did find this week, I might plan to spend an hour on something. It'll end up taking twice or three times that length of time. And then I'm still not getting to the hour I scheduled for that online course I mentioned. I also... Can't embrace the morning routine beyond the school run while it's so cold and dark. I don't mind getting up for a bit of self-reflection, a candle and some music when the sun is coming up. I mean, that feels like magic. Sitting in the pitch black, freezing because the heat's not on yet is just not for me. I am just going to keep responding to the season and winter until sunrise is a little earlier than the current 8 a.m. So I'm planning out my week. I'm aware of what I'm doing in advance rather than having a heart attack, realizing I've an hour to be somewhere. I'm scheduling in gym classes and sticking to them. And that must be feeding into my energy levels. And it stopped the nagging voice in my head that I wasn't exercising. So that's a really good thing, too. So my top tip for scheduling your week and helping it to stay in your head. I got it from my brother-in-law, so I'm going to pass it on. If you have an iPhone, I'm sure there's an Android equivalent to Siri, isn't there? But you can ask Siri to schedule things in your calendar. So the minute you make an arrangement with somebody or something, you say, hey, Siri, put an appointment in my phone and then you can just schedule it in. And then it's there and it will alert you and it will remind you because I was making all of these plans on the phone in my car. They were never getting written down and I was feeling I, I was getting to the appointments. I never really forgot anything, but I mean you can hear how messy that would be. It's made a huge difference to my week so far. I've been feeling more organized and it has helped me feel less disorganized. I will try and prioritize the online course next week. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Anna Machen scoured studies and spoke to a myriad of experts for her new book, Why We Love. The Oxford University anthropologist explores the differences between each type of love and the latest science behind why we are so woven with love into the human experience. Her aim, she says, is to have people appreciate the immensity of love and reconsider the amount they have in their lives. She joins me on the line now. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm good,
2: thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Anna, what prompted this deep dive into love from you?
2: (laughs) Really, because I've been studying it for well over a decade now. And I suppose briefly my job is to answer the question, what is love? And the more I dug into the answer to that question, the more complicated it got. And I found that where books had been before, they were often trying to present one answer to the question. And actually it's so complicated you can't do that so I decided to write the book because I actually wanted to provide as full a picture of what human love is as possible so yes it's got lots of brains and genetics and psychology and all that but it's also got all those social aspects of love you know what affects our religion or our politics or our family have on how we experience love so really I wanted to provide the most complete picture of what this phenomenon is really
1: and I mean, while you say that, because your book um, talks about what is love so many times, I had Hathaway going on and on in my head, the song (laughs) Baby Don't Hurt Me. (laughs) So thanks for that. But what are the common misconceptions about love, do you think?
2: I think there's a couple that we've got going at the moment. First of all, that romantic love is like the pinnacle of love. It's the most important thing the most important love to achieve in your life. You think everything, our media, everything is orientated towards that. And actually, I think that's a real pity because the more you study humans, what's amazing about it, and we're so lucky as a species because this is unique, is that we experience love with so many different sorts of people and even beings such as dogs or God or whoever. So I think we limit ourselves and we forget this broad spectrum. That's, That's sort of the first reason. And I think the second reason is in these worlds of social media and dating apps and all this sort of thing, I think we kind of think that love is something that we can deal with efficiently, like another chore on the list. And I actually think we need to remind ourselves how important love is to us and the effects it has on us in a positive way if we actually take the time to invest in it. So so really, those are the two key drivers for me.
1: Interesting. I mean, one of the things I thought you might say is that we assume in many ways that love is just a bunch of chemicals in our brain. I mean, how much of that is true? How much of love is what you see on the movies or what you're hoping to achieve? And how much of it is just a, a physical survival need?
2: At the, most, the thing about love is love is multifactorial. So there are many different things that input into your experience of love. At the most basic, basic level of explanation, yes, love is about survival. So it's it's the mechanism that evolution came up with to make sure that we cooperate with each other because we have to, otherwise we wouldn't survive. And what drives that instinctively and unconsciously is that set of chemicals that you touched upon. So those are the the drivers at the most basic level. But humans aren't just biology. We are psychology. We are sociology. We are culture. And so there are many other things that feed into that. So unconsciously, yes, you've got a set of chemicals, you've got a set of senses and emotions that drive your love but we've also got this massive conscious brain so that when we first meet someone whether it be a friend whether it's our baby for the first time whether it's a a potential lover yes we've got that instinctive driver of the chemistry but we've also got all those other thoughts that come into our mind so what will my friends and family think you know who does the baby look like you know what what are the rules that I've been told by society is acceptable or unacceptable in terms of how to feel or behave when I'm in love So it's a really complicated picture. And I think if you just reduce it to a load of chemicals, you're doing it's a disservice and you're actually doing your experience a disservice, I think.
1: I know it's so interesting because when you compare us to animals, obviously they have survival instincts. Obviously they are attracted to each other so that they can reproduce and ultimately survive. But Mm. we are emotional beings. So it is very different. In your book, you talk of the 10 responses, they make up the chapters of your book and you say that no single one is complete over another. So you've got survival, addiction, attachment, underestimated, personal, public, exclusive, sacred, control and motivation, which Mm. is very interesting even just to hear those words. We wouldn't necessarily apply some of them to love. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get into the 10 of them now, but is there... I know I've just said no one is complete, but is there one or two of them that were even favourites of yours, or that blew your mind a little bit more that we might be able to get into?
2: I think, this, yeah, there are some that blew my mind. Uh, the, uh, the the last chapter, motivation, really is important to me because that, it recasts what love actually is in terms of it it where it fits in our lives. So we often describe love as an emotion. Actually, love isn't an emotion. It's far too complicated to be an emotion. Emotions are are unconscious, pretty basic reactions to things. And actually, love is far too multi-layered. So actually, now what we think is happening with love is love is a fundamental survival need, a bit like hunger and thirst. It, it, it's a driver. It's a need, a fundamental need that you have in your life. And I think if we recast it in that way, it becomes, in a way, much more significant to us. So that was really interesting for me, looking at that, that motivational side of love and, and recasting it amongst those survival essential needs. Um, The other one, which I suppose is a less happy side of love, and I think that's why I wanted to include it, because otherwise you haven't got the complete picture, is the chapter on control. Because love is overwhelmingly a positive thing for most people. But the problem is, because we have this really psychological and biological desire, absolutely visceral need for love in our lives, driven by that neurochemistry, unfortunately, love can also be used for negative reasons. It can be used that knowledge that we need love to control us or us or abusers. So I actually wanted to have a chapter on that, even though most books don't touch on it, because I think it shows you that that love does have this darker side. And the fact that we have this amazing, positive view of love is lovely. And mostly it is a, a good thing, but it also does have this negative side as well. And I think that's a really interesting side to look at. And it's also what separates us from the animals. So some animals do experience love, depending on your level of definition. But one thing no animal does, apart from humans, is uses love to manipulate others.
1: No, oh, I don't know. There's a dog that sits at the side of the table and puts those <laughs> eyes on every now and then. But I do. <laughs> well, we
2: might have to include dogs in that. Then you are right. But, um, but um, you know, it's amazing that we can we can stop and think, well, I can make this person do something by saying I'm going to withhold my love or, you know, relying on the fact that, well, you don't love me if you don't do this, etc., etc. So I just think that's a really interesting and very often overlooked aspect of love.
1: No, that is really interesting. And I I don't mean to uh, make light of something that is actually (laughs) quite serious. And even Women's Aid here in Ireland had a campaign called Too Into You. And they were characteristics in a relationship that might be looked at as wow you know this is a really intense relationship and this is really positive whereas when you looked a little bit deeper there were things going on that that weren't okay and it was trying to make people realize the two that when it's controlling it's not love anymore
2: absolutely absolutely and it's really interesting what really interested me is was a study that I, I looked at from South Africa, which was looking how actually our, our romantic narrative we have in some cases isn't helpful, particularly if you're in an abusive relationship. Because we have these ideas that, for example, you know, there's the one and, you know, having somebody who's constantly doing things for you or telling you what to do, that's caring. We've got this idea that we sacrifice for love and, and therefore you put up with things for love or it's supposed to be difficult love. And all these sorts of things. And actually how some of those stories we tell each other about romantic love actually are not helpful.
1: And I know we're moving into a world where we're not as as binary or gender focused. Um, And I think it's fair to say women can be manipulative and controlling in love, too. Mm. But I wondered, is that Mm. another misconception that your study unearthed? Do men and women love differently differently?
2: It's a really tricky area. If they do, it's mostly down to culture rather than anything biological. So when we look at the neurochemistry that underpins love, when we look at the brain activations that happen when you're in love, there is no gender or sex difference between those. You couldn't tell by looking on the scanner screen whether you were looking at a male brain or a female brain. So if we have ideas about how men and women experience love maybe in a different way, then those are mainly down to the social side that's influenced how you experience love. It's what culture tells you about the acceptable ways to behave when you're in love, how men or women should feel when they're in love. And there's been lots of studies looking at where that starts appearing in children. And it tends to start appearing sort of around the age of nine or ten, when they start to sort of draw these pictures, which are starting to become very gendered in terms of what love should represent. So boys tend to represent love as, you know, Big, strong man with big muscles and and girl with, you know, pretty little dress on and big man is protecting little girl with pretty dress on And, and girls the same way. Love is all about hearts and butterflies and all these things. Now, they haven't been born to think of love that way, but they've been gendered to do it. So I think if there is a difference, then it's much more likely to be a cultural influence than a biological influence. But the tricky thing with love and what actually I find amazing about it is ultimately we'll never know. Because, you know, I know what I mean when I say I feel love and you know what you mean. But they might be
1: completely different. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating that we we actually can't measure it and yet we can all identify with it and, and feel completely. it. Yeah. You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to anthropologist Anna Machin about her latest book, Why We Love The New Science Behind Our Closest Relationships. Anna, what does the future of love look like? It's really interesting, isn't it?
2: The future of love in one sense is more of the same. People always say to me, oh, there's been this amazing revolution of dating apps and all this sort of thing. How has love changed? And actually, love hasn't changed. You know, those, the, that biological basis of love, the psychological basis is incredibly old and it hasn't changed in that way. But I think what we will look at in the future is, is that spectrum of who we can love, is it going to expand more? You know we're moving into a world of the metaverse this is the new big thing and the idea of having avatars of yourself online and, and so are we going to fall in love with other avatars online and what's that going to look like in the brain? what's that going to feel like We've also got the idea of the introduction of AI and the possibility of what we call social robots coming into your life. so are you going to be able to build a loving friendship relationship with this robot? what's that going to look like? Are we going to see you know the fingerprint of love in your brain? I must say Early research on that, the answer is no. Uh, Most brains, when they interact with a robot, look distinctly uh, underwhelmed, to be honest. But, um, you know, maybe robotics will develop and that might be a possibility. And the other big thing on the horizon is love drugs. So because we understand so much more about the neurochemistry now of love, we can then try to artificially induce that by taking some form of drug. And there is a lot of research going on looking at drugs that are in fact already out there as to whether they can induce love, whether they can increase people's motivation to find love, whether they can increase your empathy, all these different things. And ultimately, there is so much money, in particularly in romantic love, if you think about it, that if we get to that level of science where these drugs exist, then someone is going to, com- is going to commercially exploit that. And then we have lots of questions to ask about the ethics and, and how we deal with that.
1: That's really interesting. And I, I think our kind of hackles go up and because of what Hollywood has represented will happen with robots, we feel scared. But I have to say, I have started to get a bit of a, a friendship with Siri. Siri is helping me <laughs> in life. And I, I kind of say, thank you to Siri. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Well, <laughs> well, Siri is helping me to put things in my diary so I don't forget them. And I, I feel grateful. It's funny. It's like a little connection does start. And loneliness is such a big killer in people isn't it and it's such a big health issue and I know that with older generations having some sort of robot there that keeps an eye on them that alerts family if if anything happens that is just there to sort of say good morning can make a real impact on people's lives so yeah you can see where we're going that way but hopefully with trepidation I said in the intro that you know in your prologue you say that your aim is to help people reconsider the amount of love they have in their lives. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that means? Really, for me, that meant
2: trying to sort of shut down this obsession we do have with romantic love. A lot of the people I talk to, when you say, what is love? They will describe romantic love to you. Well, love is this. In a way, it's because we as as as, as English speakers only have one love, word for love, love. And therefore, we kind of spread it really thinly, but we kind of assume that it, we're talking about romantic love. So I wanted to remind people that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all these other interactions that you have in your life. And I really, I think, not that the moment for romantic love is over, it certainly isn't, but it's about saying, well, actually, all the other forms of love in your life, which maybe you put further down that little hierarchy, are actually just as beneficial to you, just as joyous, just as wonderful. And particularly for women, in a world where, you can, we don't really need men in the same way we did to support us financially maybe a hundred years ago. You know, we can work, we can make our own money. And with contraception, we can choose not to have children. But actually, so that leaves your friendship love, for example. And actually, maybe we need to relook really at that because friendship love can bring all of the benefits of romantic love to your life, particularly if you don't want to be with that partner, if you choose to be single. And there is an increasingly single population globally. So it's about saying, actually, let's just rethink where love is in our life and where the benefits of that love are, because it's not necessarily where the films and the romantic novels and the poetry would have you believe it is.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. And I I really liked having the experts and the scientific studies and you as an anthropologist back that up, because I've always felt as well that we put our romantic partners on this pedestal to be, all kinds of everything to us, whereas they're just one part in the puzzle of our lives. I mean, you've got your friendship groups, you've got your work colleagues, you've got your little bit of banter in the corner shop, and all of that makes up the love in your life. And I I think some people underestimate that. As you say, well, I don't think your book should be underestimated. I found it absolutely fascinating. Anna Machin, author of Why We Love. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, living with motor neuron disease with Dr. Mary Murray. Alive and
0: kicking on News Talk with Benadryl day and night tablets, 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice.
1: Motor neuron disease has been in the public sphere recently. Charlie Bird gave a beautifully honest interview on the Late Late Show recently, talking of his diagnosis. MND is a complex, progressive neurological condition that attacks the motor neurons or the nerves in the brain and the spinal cord. This means that messages gradually stop reaching the muscles, which can lead to weakness and wasting. Motor neuron disease can affect the everyday things that many of us take for granted, and a diagnosis of MND can be frightening and overwhelming. That's why good quality information and support from people who understand the condition is vital. Cork University Press, in collaboration with the Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association, have recently published Living with Motor Neuron Disease, a complete guide. And it's edited by Dr. Mary Murray. And she joins me on the line now. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hello, Chair. Good. Thank you. Not tell to me talk to you. and to you and tell me a little bit about how you came to be involved in, in this project.
0: Yeah, I am the series editor for a Mind Yourself um, Health and Wellbeing series published by uh, Cork University Press. It's a developing series. And I just had come across M&D in the sense of thinking this is such a significant um, diagnosis and condition and it taps into um, every element, I suppose, of, of life. And therefore, it seemed to be a particularly uh, good one to address in the book, in, in, in a book.
1: I mentioned a, um, a description in the introduction of what motor neuron disease is and, and how it affects the body. Yeah. How is it diagnosed? It's diagnosed. We're so doubly clear. I mean,
0: we have the most incredible, superb professionals working at the coalface of motor neuron disease. And uh, so, therefore, we have people like Professor Orla Hardiman. It takes time to diagnose it because it comes in very different variable and kind of subtle forms. So that, you know, early signs, for example, people may find they lose their grip or they've unexpected falls or clumbliness or, you know, they're turning the key. They have a difficulty turning the key or maybe a change in voice, as as Charlie Bird described to us so wonderfully. Um or, or muscle weakness or dropping things. So because those early symptoms and signs are so kind of subtle and intermittent and nonspecific and vague, it can be mistaken for other things. So it does take a while before it's diagnosed, but really the diagnosis comes then from the a neurologist, from a whole series of tests. And there's great multi, you know, disciplinary many professionals involved in this, but essentially from the neurologist.
1: And then, you know, it's it's a very overwhelming diagnosis, isn't it? And and frightening because there's there's quite a spiral that then comes with it, which is going to affect, obviously, the individual at the centre of but also their their family and everything about their life.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really a kind of a devastating diagnosis. And, you know, people will describe it in in all kinds of ways. The, you know, Father Tony Coote, who you will remember, did that amazing walk from one end of Ireland to the next on his diagnosis of, of motor neuron. He just spoke about literally falling to the ground when he got the diagnosis. So it is something that it takes Uh, because it's not just the individual, as you say, Claire, who's affected, it's the entire family, it's the network of people around the person. So it's it's initially a very terrifying uh, diagnosis to receive. But then it is important as well that people recognise, you know, there is hope. And, you know, there are some who have a longer life expectancy than others. Uh, It takes different forms. You know, given that... It is so variable in the way it shows itself in the difficulties that people can have. It is hugely important that people have hope. And of course, hope also is invested in the research. The more research we do, the more we come to understand it, the more we we see, you know, what are the conditions in which people do well and uh, what do they need? All of that um, is ongoing. And it, there's a great, we have the longest register ever in Ireland and one of the best. And that's kind of tracking things, you know, in in terms of, um, you know, the age at which you get it. Younger is better. The sight of the, you know, the onset, if it's the spinal, it's better. The length of time from the first symptoms to the diagnosis, a longer time or whether breathing is affected. So all of this, or, or the Hardiman, Professor Ola Hardiman outlines in the book, um, and then there is, of course, a, a kind of a specific genetic condition uh, where there is a, a more difficult prognosis. So everybody is different. And while there is, it is a life limiting condition. Don't forget, we have Stephen Hawking as the example of living um, a very long and amazing and uh, um, productive life uh, with the condition.
1: You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk and I'm talking to Dr. Mary Murray about a book that she has edited called Living with Motor Neuron Disease a complete guide. And Mary, what is the latest research? Do we know why people get it? Is there any improvements in treatment? Are we any closer to a cure? Well, I
0: think that there is phenomenal international research and Ireland has been very, very prominent in that and treatments are improving. And of course, we have technology now, the, you know, the way in which technology can assist people in terms of wheelchair use, um, uh, devices that help them kindle to read uh, voice, um, you know, banking the voice. Um, so there's, there's a lot. That is available now, that wasn't uh, before. And I think the the other thing that really I realised as I edited this was the incredible interventions there are. No matter what happens to you, or no matter you know what form it, your particular condition takes, there is an intervention. So, for example, in terms of symptom management, you know, if you have pain, if you have cramps, muscle cramps, if you have uh, breathing problems, you know, dry mouth saliva. I was really impressed by the fact that symptom management, every single detail on anything that could possibly happen to you, there is, you know, some intervention to support you, to help you um, and to, to help you through this. For anybody who receives a diagnosis, any family member, because of course, as, you know, one family said, my father didn't receive the diagnosis. We all did. This is a, 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 a diagnosis and a difficulty that goes way beyond the individual person. But it's so important to realise the extent to which research is ongoing, the extent to which treatments are being always monitored and developed and recalibrated and introduced. The lovely uh, chapter in the book, by um, a clinical nurse specialist, Bernie Corr, and she just talks in such a reassuring way about symptom management. So regardless of what the symptom is and the difficulty is, and they vary from one person to another, there is knowledge about how to help and, and support the person through that.
1: And like you say, it doesn't just affect the person with the diagnosis, but it ripples out to everyone around them. And you do have chapters in the book about how to adapt home life, working conditions, how to talk to children and adolescents, tell family and friends, and also the caregiver experience. And when I think of of motor neuron disease, I always go back to the Irish filmmaker Simon Fitzmaurice. And he has since died from motor neuron disease, but... He was very vocal about it during his his time with it. He wrote a beautiful book I'd urge everybody to read just for a little reflection on what life is and, and, and its beauty. It's called It's Not Yet Dark. And it's fascinating how life can prevail. Um, it is obviously very sad that this man in his prime with a family he adored, his career was taking off and that this just came into his life and, and exploded. But his kids would just still climb up on his knees and not worry about the medical equipment. But his wife, Ruth Fitzmaurice, also wrote her book, I Found My Tribe. And and she talked about the sheer volume of carers coming in and out of the house. You know, some clicked well with the family, some didn't, what she had to do to try and survive it. So it is very important to talk about all those elements, isn't it? The the person, the people coming in, the family and friends and the impact it, it literally has on everybody.
0: Absolutely, Claire. I mean, you are really tapping in here in all of that to the core and the essence of this. And what is extraordinary is the manner in which families they rise to the occasion altogether. If ever we needed proof of the solidity and the love and the care and the adaptability and the of families, we find it in this. I mean, it's a whole family diagnosis. Everything can change. There can be role reversals. As you say, children may be helping parents and, you know, helping at quite a significant level in the home. Um, and yet, Families seem to manage, even though it's a changing condition. I often think that one of the most difficult things is uh, that just when somebody has adapted to one element of it, you know, another new um, capacity may go and then everybody has to adapt again. And yet families do it. So there is something extraordinary. And it is indeed in those books, too, that, that you've mentioned. There's something quite extraordinary that happens. I don't know whether it's the human spirit, but I've been stunned by this in relation to motor neuron that everybody rallies round and in a way that is quite phenomenal.
1: Yeah. And it's a reminder to us of it's the simplest things in life are ultimately the most important. Well, I would highly recommend those books to people. Aside from informing yourself on motor neuron disease, as I say, it's just a snapshot of what life and love is. Simon Fitzmaurice, It's Not Yet Dark, and Ruth Fitzmaurice, I Found My Tribe. And now, Absolutely. this book, edited by Dr. Mary Murray, Living with Motor Neuron Disease A Complete Guide. Mary, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Living with Motor Neuron Disease, a complete guide, is available now from Cork University Press in collaboration with the Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association. And all proceeds from the sales of the book go to the association. Coming up after the break, online fitness sensation Chrissy Chella, who has over 3 million followers online, on why she's not motivated by what she looks like. Alive and kicking
0: on News Talk. With Benadryl day and night tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice.
1: You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Chrissy Chella went from being terrified of the gym to becoming an international fitness sensation, helping millions find the joy in exercise. She has a number of fitness apps. She has a gym wear brand. She has over 3 million followers online. Her debut book, Do This For You, was a bestseller and she is back with Happy, Healthy, Strong. And she joins me on the line now. Hello, Chrissy, How are you?
3: I'm well. How are you?
1: I'm very good. And your title is a very good one. Is that how you rate fitness? Happy first and healthy and strong. I notice you don't put skinny in there or mention gene size.
3: No, I think we're all over being um, skinny and determining that our, you know, happiness should be determined by the size jeans you wear. That is certainly not what I believe in. That's certainly not what I want any woman to think when it comes to their wellness and health.
1: Tell people a little little bit about your story then. It was originally a a bad breakup that sent you into the gym where you wanted to find something that empowered you and, and made you feel good about yourself.
3: Yeah, I mean... I went through a really difficult heartbreak. I really felt like I didn't amount to anything. I felt like no one understood what I was going through and I just felt quite lonely and I didn't feel good enough for anyone, for the partner I was with, for the friend group that I had, for the colleagues that I would work with. And I just wanted a change. It wasn't driven by physical change. It was driven by emotional change. And so I stepped foot in the gym. I didn't know what I was doing. I I'm, I still am learning. Nearly a decade of training. I still am learning every single day. But it was by far the best decision I ever made. Was prioritizing myself, regardless how busy my day is, regardless of my responsibilities. Just giving myself that thirty to forty minutes where I move in my body is by far the best decision I ever made in my life.
1: And it's interesting because you talk about that time in your life when you were feeling low, you weren't nourishing your body properly, your body weight had dropped. And so you had abs because your body fat had dropped so low and everybody was saying, oh, my God, you look amazing. And that's not the reality. That's not how we should be rating things. You were at your lowest. So you're at pains to tell people that just because you've got abdominals and you're drinking green juice every day, doesn't mean you're well that's not wellness
3: no I think look there's a big misconception that just because you look a certain way then you must be feeling a certain way so for example because I had let's say shredded abs or just because I fit in a size pair of jeans the assumption is that oh she must be so happy that her abs are visible she must be so happy that that's the way she looks well, not necessarily because I was spiraling into a really deep depression um, with so many things that was going on in my life that it wasn't intentional. And there's just such a negative misconception that because someone looks a certain way, that must mean they've got nothing to complain about in life. Um, and that's not necessarily the truth at all. And now that I am he- heavier, now that I am curvier, now that sometimes There are days I don't even know where an ab is. I am so much happier within myself and how my body moves and how my mind feels as well.
1: So, when did you begin sharing your fitness journey online? How did it start from one follower to millions of followers?
3: It was never intentional to gain followers, it was never a thing where I said, Okay, today I'm going to post on Instagram every single day and I'm going to gain X amount of followers. That was never the intention. I posted because I was keeping myself accountable and I was getting more and more confident within myself and I wanted to showcase all my hard work. And next thing I knew there was women all over the world that would um, join me on my journey. And we built this incredible community with such an organic and pure intent. And that's what I continue to do. I just hope that one thing I post someone tries or they feel inspired or they feel welcomed or they just feel like they can simply relate to something I say.
1: And even though I think it's clear what your message is from, you know, our discussion up until now, and your intention is not to focus on the aesthetic, it's really hard not to, isn't it, when you're talking about a physical transformation that ultimately will happen when you begin working out. And a lot of your photos and videos are centred around your body, which is toned and muscular. So do you ever feel conflicted with that that even if you're showing that your belly sticks out some days that we're still focusing in on the body how do you navigate between that
3: yeah I mean look you see it you see billboard abs and you see a a woman look a specific way or a man look a specific way and it can be aspirational or it can be motivational to some women or some men but the bottom line is um what people are failing to understand is that behind the scenes it's pure consistency it's habits it's that determination and resilience that i have got up when my day has been so bad and down that you know even if it's raining outside i've gone in the car and i've gone to the gym or i've worked out at home even when i've had bad news i'm going for a walk with my dog and trying to move my body and people are seeing a byproduct right they're seeing a picture perfect image but really behind that picture-perfect image is all the other things people don't see, which is the constant drive, the constant resilience, the constant, I have to do this for myself because I never want to let myself down, not from a physical aspect, but from a resilience aspect. Like I have to prioritize myself and I have to do this for me because if I don't do this for me, no one else will. So it's hard to showcase that because like you said, you're seeing a picture on Instagram and it's instant gratification but you're not seeing the the hard work that goes behind it.
1: And I see, Chrissy the times you post what I eat in a day. And usually I hate anything like that because I'm thinking, oh, God, everybody's different. And, you know, what's that going to mean? But actually your message is always, look, I eat loads. My diet is varied. I go out for dinner. We don't need to be afraid of food, which is not often a message we get, I think, when we come to talking about health and wellness.
3: Yeah, and you'll find that in the book, and the book has desserts, snacks, Um, you know, you have tons of carbs, different variations of carbs, you have tons of fats, different variations of fats. Look, we are in this world to enjoy it, we're in this world to not restrict ourselves into an unsustainable manner. If something is unsustainable in your life, you shouldn't be doing it. So if cutting out a specific food group to lose a specific amount of weight has become unsustainable, it's because you shouldn't be doing it. So I've come to the realization, and this has taken me a long time, by the way. At the beginning, it wasn't like this. I've come to the realization that if I wanna do this thing called health and wellness for the rest of my life, I need to accept that there are days where I do want a big bowl of ramen, noodles. I want to order pizza and I will. I want to have dessert and i will and there isn't a day that goes by that i don't have dessert that's a pure fact they'll have a slice of cake i'll have a cupcake i'll have ice cream i'll have something because i have a sweet tooth so i'm not going to stop myself from doing that just because society tells you otherwise um so i hope that that comes across on what i post on social
1: it really does and throughout the book which is packed full of brilliant workout advice and gorgeous recipes but that is the message. It doesn't have to be restrictive. And you talk about flipping the switch in our brain that we don't have to necessarily think about exercise as a chore and something that we have to do and, and we dread because it has to be ticked off. Why can't it be something that we look forward to? And I love how you talk about going to the gym and how it forces us to be present. So it really kind of helps with strengthening our our mindset and can be like mindfulness to us. I I think we're starting to change the conversation, but it's great that you're at the the forefront of that, that that's one of the reasons it makes you feel good and built up your, your strength in yourself and your character. We don't hear that enough. People, like we said at the start, are going because they they hate their body or they don't feel good in themselves and it's all very negative whereas it can actually be such a positive experience
3: a hundred percent look there are so many people on on our on our thing called earth that don't have the ability to move their bodies don't have access to a gym aren't maybe even allowed to go to a gym you know there are so many people on this world that were able to train before but have fallen into a deep depression and can't get out of bed or have lost a limb or you know have a terrible illness and that's why every single day you should acknowledge the fact that you have a body that you have a body that can move and yet you're complaining about moving it and i think that it's one of those things where every single day we brush our teeth and we don't think twice about it it's part of our oral hygiene and if we don't brush our teeth then our teeth will decay it's the same thing regarding your body every single day your body should have some form of movement whether that's a walk whether that's you training whether that's you jumping on a trampoline some form of movement because if you don't then the health and wellness aspects of things will just just deteriorate so That's why it's such a privilege to be able to move our body. It's such a privilege to be able to feel pressure and to grow and evolve. And if only people started seeing it as a celebration rather than a chore, it would make them realise that they're doing something so great for themselves as opposed to punishing themselves because they're moving their body.
1: Well, you've got this woman on board anyway. You dedicated (laughs) the book to your mum. Tell us a little bit about her and, and why she's such an inspiration to you.
3: She's um, my rock, she's my soldier. Um, we immigrated here in the back of Banana Lorry about 21 to 22 years ago. And, you know, she came to this country and she would work three jobs at a time. She worked as a checkout girl. She learned English, she got, you know, her qualification. She worked so hard, constantly, and absolutely never complained. I never heard my mom ever complain. Never heard my mom ever say, she's tired, she doesn't want to do this. She just kept going because she knew her purpose was greater than, you know, showing to everyone, look, I'm working three jobs. Look how hard I'm working. Um, And she taught me the importance of resilience and just to keep on going. And I can't stress enough that success isn't about what you achieve. It's the ability to just keep going and to keep going, even if it's so difficult and i just think she's such a soldier and if i could be even 10% of her when i'm a little bit older then i'm really happy
1: well i mean i think you're you're there absolutely you're you're living everything she stood for and it is impressive you you talk a little bit about your mom working all the time your dad suffering from addiction and the bad breakup and you you had two crossroads you could sit back and feel sorry for yourself or you could forge your own path and You certainly have done that. I love your mantra. It's the title of your book, Happy, Healthy, Strong. Chrissy Chella, thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, to Garrett Mulhall and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week.